0: Good morning. Good morning. Stay standing. We are going to open up God's Word to the book of Galatians this morning. If you're using one of the black Bibles from the back, you can find the passage on page 973. This morning, we're reading Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Thank you. You may have a seat.
1: Well, Redemption Church, we love the scripture. And we love to study the scripture. And so, uh, across all four of our congregations this morning, uh, as well as the fifth that is about to go public uh, in West Mesa, that's a bilingual uh, congregation, uh, we're studying this book of Galatians. And we've titled it Fighting for Grace. And the reason we've titled it that is because we believe that grace is incredibly counterintuitive. We operate under the regular thinking of what goes around comes around, you reap what you sow. If you do something, you earn something as a result of that. Grace comes in and upends the whole thing where you get what you don't deserve. You get something you haven't earned. You get a blessing from God you haven't merited. And it's so strange and it's so uh, counterintuitive that we have to fight for it. And that's what this book of Galatians is really about. It's a letter written to people who have experienced incredible grace. But their tendency, just like ours is to drift towards wanting to earn it through, in their particular case, doing good works, doing the works of the law. Uh, for them, it was circumcision and, and eating, the, the particular laws as, as you know, prescribed in the Jewish ceremonial law. But for us, it's just a, a drift towards just trying to be a good person. We struggle to get grace. We've got two daughters, uh, Abby, who's five and, like, uh, in preschool, and uh, Caitlin, who's three, and we gave Abby a project a number of, of uh, months back, where it was going to take her a while to work through it. And we told her that if she would work through it and if she would be faithful and work hard, that at the end we would get to go to Yogurt Jungle. Which is not a bad not a bad incentive, right? We like Yogurt Jungle at our house, and so uh, we went to Yogurt Jungle, and uh, and Abby and Caitlin got to go and have Yogurt Jungle. And and we made sure that Abby knew. That she was getting Yogurt Jungle because she had earned it by working hard. And that Caitlin was getting Yogurt Jungle by grace. <laughs> she had not earned it. She had not done anything. In fact, she was getting it because of the effort of another. She got it by grace. And that's what grace is. It's getting blessing. It's getting um, it's getting joy and, and merit and blessing and righteousness from God that you don't earn. That is really, someone else has earned it, and that person is Jesus. And so what we're looking at in this whole book is that idea of radical grace. And today we get to the key passage in this book of Galatians. Uh, this is the most important uh, part of the book of Galatians, if you want to really understand what it's about. Uh, we'll watch the super bowl this afternoon. I'm sure many of you will as well and there will inevitably be a few key plays that shape the outcome of that game. And if you watch sports center tonight or tomorrow, you will see these plays over and over and over and over again, right? They were the ones that made or made or broke the the game for a particular team. This is the make or break passage. This is the highlight that we need to focus in on in depth. It's incredibly important. Commentator William Ramsey said this. After working through the rest of the epistle, that's just the letter, the letter of Galatians, one returns to these verses and finds in them the whole truth in embryo. If you want to understand the whole argument for the book of Galatians about fighting for grace, it's found in this particular passage. In fact, I would say that that a big part of just what the whole message of the Bible is is found in this particular passage. This is important. Uh, Mike Shea says this, to say that these verses are important would be an outrageous understatement. Wars have been fought over these verses. Thousands of Christians have shed their blood to defend the proper understanding of these verses. The shallow, sweep-everything-under-the-rug theology of much modern evangelicalism is an insult to the martyrs of centuries past. He's referring there to the Protestant Reformation, which was built largely on the truths that we see in this particular passage. So this is a very important passage, not just to honor history, but in order for us to live rightly and to rightly understand what relationship with God is and how it comes. It's going to be incredibly important. We'll see in the day of judgment, the day when we all stand before the Lord, but it's important now because we're all living in light of that future reality. and If we want to relate to God now, this passage shows us how to do it. How do you come to the Lord? How do you have a relationship with God? What gives you the ability to pray to God? What gives you the right to ask anything of God? It's found in this passage. This is unbelievably important. Now before we get into this particular text, let me just remind you where we've been, catch you up on this series. We started in chapter one, uh, where Paul, after a a very brief kind of greeting, just launches right into these Galatians and says, guys, I can't believe it. I'm astonished how you've started to drift away from the gospel. These these false teachers had come, these Judaizers is what Paul calls them, and they were teaching a message of Jesus plus. They said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, Jesus is the anointed one from God. But in order to, to be made right with God, you also have to keep the Jewish laws. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. And so Paul is saying that that drift is not just a subtle drift, it's a major drift into a false gospel. And he says in chapter 1 that anyone who would believe this or embrace this or teach this false gospel is under the threat of God's wrath. Then he goes in the back half of chapter 1 and he tells his story. He talks about how he was actually a persecutor of Christians and God changed his heart and uh, actually gave him a heart to build the church that he formerly tried to destroy we see that, that that change in him gives him a boldness and also a humility where what's most important to him, Paul becomes the Messiah's slave. He's not living for the approval of people, even of important people like the other leaders in the church. He's living for the approval of one, an audience of one. He's living for God. And so last week, this culminated in, uh, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Uh, Pastor Justin Anderson was here and, and talked about how uh, even... Peter, the rock that the church would be built on, even Peter was starting to drift into this hypocrisy, this Jesus plus thing. and Peter knew better. Paul knew that Peter knew better. And Peter was influential, and so not only was he doing that, but others were following. He says even Barnabas was led astray. So he says in chapter 2, verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct Was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul has been willing even to confront Peter to his face about this. And so then the discussion continues in verses 15 to 21. And commentators have really debated about whether what we read in 15 to 21 is still uh, Paul talking to Peter or whether it's now Paul turning his attention to the Galatians. So look at the end of of verse 14. You see quotation marks there, right, at the end. Um, There's not punctuation in the Greek text. So translators, when they have to translate uh, Scripture into English, which uses punctuation, uh, they have to add commas, they have to add quotation marks they have to make these choices where do we think the quote ended and uh, many even think that the the quote doesn't end until 21 that perhaps this whole thing we're going to study today is what Paul is saying to Peter I don't know that it's particularly important for this reason in terms of in terms of which whether it's still the quote or not the same thing that Paul needed to say to Peter was the thing that the Galatians needed to hear too And so that's why he's using the whole thing. So whether the quote is supposed to end or not, uh, this is for sure stuff that the Galatians need to hear. And it's the same thing we need to hear. Because we, like the Galatian church, like Barnabas, like even Peter, have this tendency to drift. Those of us who are followers of Christ know this experience, where you, you trust in Christ, you have a moment where you say, I my only hope to know God is to believe and to trust in, in Jesus. But then what happens is slowly, subtly, especially as you get into uh, the religious church culture that many of us know and are familiar with and that we all just drift towards, we tend to then build our identity not on what Jesus has done but on what we do. And it becomes functionally a Jesus plus. Now we would pass the Jesus is the only way test, but, but functionally... The thing that that will either allow us to live in freedom and joy and knowing we're accepted by God or the thing that is always kind of keeping us in fear, keeping us in bondage, keeping us very, very busy because we have to do lots of things to impress God and other people. It's Jesus plus. So this is incredibly important for us, not just in the day uh, that we will stand before the Lord, but even now. This passage is going to be all about what theologians have called justification. Justification. I'll explain what that means more in a second. I'll define that. It's the way we we're made right with God. This passage is all about that. So what we have is, is really, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you three main ideas about what this passage teaches us about justification. Uh, the first one and the third one are very clear. They're very straightforward. The second one is takes a little bit of wrestling and thinking. Now, I know that you're okay with thinking here, right? Like you don't mind learning something at church? You're okay with that, right? So, so we'll think a little bit, but, but we'll dig through this. The first thing that we see in this passage is that justification is by faith. Justification is by faith, so trust Jesus. Now some of you are still going, what's justification? I'm, I don't know what that is. I'm new to this. Well, great. Here you go. Verse 15 Uh, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, we'll get to justification in a moment. But what Paul is saying here, he's saying, me me and Peter, we're Jews. We were raised in in religion. We were raised under the teaching of Scripture. We're not like the Gentile sinners, right? And when you see the word sinners, you kind of have to put, like, quotes around it, like, sinners. and, And almost kind of, you know, draw up your angriest hellfire and brimstone preacher you can think of, right? And read this and go, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile. Sinners. Right? Because that was, that was the way this word was used. It's like, we're not like those people. Not a sinner. This is the same word that's used all throughout the Gospels when it says that Jesus was eating with, with uh, tax collectors and sinners. is the, the derelicts of society. And, and, and Paul here is saying, yeah, I grew up religious. Yeah, I grew up Jewish. Not like one of these horrible people. But he's going to say, it doesn't really matter. So verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So justified. What does this mean? It's used three times in verse 16, once in verse 17. Uh, It's used a a number of times in this book and especially in the book of Romans. The word justify or justified, it's a legal term. And it means to be declared righteous. To be counted righteous. The idea is that... uh, It's referring to the verdict of not guilty that God would pronounce on the day of judgment. Notice, uh, it's not saying that you have an inherent righteousness in you that God is recognizing, going, oh wow, you really are righteous. It's it's not a, uh, in theological words here, it's not an infused righteousness that's actually in you. It's an imputed righteousness, the righteousness of another that gets credited to your account. Someone else does something to earn it. You get it credited to you by grace. It means to be declared righteous. The the image here is the image of God as judge. The Bible uses a lot of different words to describe God. He's a rock. He's a shield. He's a defender. He's a father. But he is a judge. And the language of justification has in mind the day when each of us will stand before God. After we've died, right? And the statistics on death are pretty compelling. <laughs> right? We will die. The scripture says everyone's destined to die and after that, the judgment. And so everyone of us will have the time when uh, we're in the courtroom of heaven and, and God will have to declare something about us. He will declare guilty or he will de- say you're declared Righteous. That's the language of justification. That will happen. You will be declared either guilty or declared righteous. Now, what is the basis on which you would be declared righteous? That's what Paul is talking about in this particular passage. What is the basis for your justification? What's the basis for you being acquitted in the court of heaven? Well, he says it's it's not by works of the law. Notice in verse 16, he begins and ends verse 16 saying it's not by works of the law. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. What are works of the law? Simply being obedient to the rules in God's word. In this particular case, he's referring to the ceremonial laws of the Jews. For us, it would be being a good person, being moral, Obeying more rules than you break. I mean, that, would be that kind of thing. He's saying, You're not made right with God. You're not declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus to be justified, declared righteous, by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So you get that? He starts and ends saying, Works of the law is not the option, it's not that. And, and he, he says, notice it's, it's general and then specific and then universal, right? Verse 16, generally, a person's not justified by works of the law. Specifically, he says, we've believed in Jesus. And then universally, at the end of verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, the language here is, and again, the, the courtroom idea is at play. And what what he's saying is that all of us will have the moment when God says to us, why should I let you into my presence forever? Why should I let you into heaven? Now, now the Lord won't actually ask that question because he knows. But what would your answer be? Now, if you're like most people, your answer, why should I let you into heaven, would be, I'm a pretty good person. I, I try to be good. I try to be helpful. I am not uh, intentionally mean to anyone. I, I've never killed anybody. Well, that's a high standard. <laughs> but but I'm but I'm you know and and compared to the people in my family, I mean you should see how screwed up they are, and I'm better than them. And it would be some version of that. That's how that's how most people think of it. It's the idea that you know God would weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds on a scale and if the good outweighs the bad you'd you'd go to heaven and all of us give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that the good would outweigh the bad Uh, they wouldn't because the scripture says in Isaiah 64 that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God so if if we're in the courtroom of heaven and God says the case is opened why should this person be allowed to come into my presence, and we're going to haul in, you know, our cases of of good works and, and present those as evidence. What verse 16 devastatingly says is, that won't work. By works of the law, no one will be justified. So if you can't be justified by well, I'm a pretty good person and I'm better than them and I, and I ra- was raised morally and then what's your hope? Well, your hope, it says in this passage, is faith in Jesus Christ. Again, beginning of verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. not works of the law. What does faith mean? It's used three times there. Faith is not simply uh, just kind of believing that something is kind of true. It's depending on it. It's relying on it. It's leaning into it. It's putting your confidence in it. The picture that's been in my head as I've been thinking about this is, uh, you know, this happens quite a bit actually here at our church. We've got so many young kids, and isn't it cool to have so many young kids running around? Isn't that great? And especially when they're other people's kids that are being really loud and whatever. Um, but, but what will happen is there will be sometimes, especially with, with kind of little kids, you know, you, you'll go up and you'll want to you'll say hi to them. And you're an intimidating presence because you're like twice their height and they don't know you, right? So you, you, you know, try to engage this little kid in a conversation. And what does he do? He hides behind mom's leg, Right? He's clinging to mom. He's depending on mom to say, I don't want you to look at me or talk to me. I'm not here. Right? And if a kid can't see you, they think that you can't see them either, right? And and they cling to the leg. That's what faith in Christ is. Faith in Christ is walking into the courtroom of heaven, seeing God, who is way bigger than you, and who with a breath can crush you and who is rightly angry at the way you have belittled him and the people he's made through your sin and faith is seeing that and clinging to jesus leg saying don't don't look at me look at him don't don't look at what i've done look at look at what he's done that's what faith is It's trusting in Jesus' record for you rather than hauling in your own. Because Jesus is the one who lived righteously. He is the one who never sinned. He is the one who always did what his Father commanded. And so being justified by faith in Christ is simply clinging to him and looking to him that on the basis of what he's done, God would declare you righteous. That's what this is. And so if you are hoping in anything else, you're hoping in something that will never deliver. That's verses 15 and 16. I think they're very clear. You're not going to be made right with God by doing good things. Your only chance is to trust in Jesus. You get that? You see that there? Now Paul's going to engage this next section, uh, kind of a, a more nuanced argument uh, related to uh, how exactly this this works and so um, i encourage you dig into this think about this with me as we talk about it the second thing uh, we'll see here about justification is that it never comes through works never comes through works so repent of your good works stop trusting in your good works to merit you anything see see coming to christ is realizing you're a terrible sinner Right? When, you, when you are standing before God, the reason you would cling to the leg of Jesus is because you realize that if God were to see you on your own for what you've done, the only verdict that would be right would be guilty, condemned. Right? So to come to faith in Christ is to admit that you are a sinner. And that's what Paul's going to address here in verse 17. He says, But if, our, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. He says, listen, if, if, by, if by coming to Christ, I am admitting that I am just as bad as the tax collectors, just as bad as the sinners, just as bad as the Gentile, irreligious pagans who've never known God, because that's what you have to admit if you're going to be a follower of Christ. If I do that, is then Christ a, a servant, a minister of sin? Is Jesus just want me to sin? He goes, no way, certainly not. Then he says this, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He says the problem is not in admitting you're a sinner. The problem is rebuilding what you tore down. So this is where we got to think. What is Paul talking about? What did he tear down? He says if I rebuild what I tore down, then I'm, then I'm particularly guilty. Well, what did, he, what did he tear down? Well, what he tore down was his reliance on his own ability to keep the law, right? By clinging to Jesus, he's, he's letting go any hope of bringing his record before, before the courtroom of heaven, right? And Paul had a pretty good record. I, I don't know if you've read in Philippians 3 where he says, I was, I was a Jew's Jew. I was a Pharisee's Pharisee circumcised on the eighth day, of the tribe of Benjamin. This lists all this pedigree. I was zealous. I even persecuted the church in God's name. He says, and all of that I count as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. He he tears it down. He says, so if I were to rebuild that after coming to faith in Christ, if I were to then say, no, it's not really just Jesus, it's, it's Jesus plus me rebuilding my own stature, my own good works, then I'm proving I'm a transgressor. That's a problem. He says, verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, this is very kind of wordy Paul stuff, right? Even the Apostle Peter in, in one of his letters said, you know, sometimes the stuff Paul writes is kind of hard to understand. <laughs> so if you've ever felt like that, you're in, you're in good company. What, what, what does he mean? Look at it. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What does it mean to die to the law? Well, to die to the law means that you're dead in the sight of the law. The law can no longer punish you. The, long, the law no longer can condemn you. You're dead. So uh, if that still doesn't make sense, this, this may help. This is a morbid, but I think effective illustration. Um, and sadly, this is all too common in our day where somebody will, um, for whatever reason, totally lose it and they will go to a university or they'll go to a mall or they'll go somewhere and they will do some sort of mass killing, right? Open up gun do the do the whole thing and how does that usually end they usually turn the gun on themselves and so what happens at that point is you can no longer prosecute that person because they're dead right you you, you don't no one arrests the dead person no one no one brings the dead person into court and tries them they're dead right the law has no power over them anymore because they're they're already dead and that's what Paul is saying. I'm, I'm dead to the law. When I, when I go into the courtroom of heaven, the law can't be used to, to punish me anymore because I already died. You know, you already died. What are you talking about? So we're thinking deeply here. He already died, and he says, through the law I died to the law. Okay, so how did he die to the law, no longer under its condemnation, through the law? What, what does that mean? Well, if you think about the law, its true purpose, biblically speaking, is to demonstrate that you are a sinner. It's to expose your sin and to push you to Christ. When you look at the law of God and all that God commands, right, the Old Testament alone has 613 commandments. And if you just even think about the first one, love the Lord God with everything, how are we doing? Right? So, so as soon as you go, I'm going to live up to that standard, it crushes you. It kills you. It, it, and that's its design. Paul is saying, by, by trusting in the law, I was exposed to be what I actually am, which is a sinner. I was driven to Christ, and in Christ, I died to the law. Mike Shea says this. He says, if you are still entertaining any hope of standing before God on the basis of your good conduct in the world... Your efforts to keep the law, you've not begun to understand the law of God. Legalists have a very shallow understanding of the law. Those who try to live to the law have never felt the power of the law. If you think you can keep the law, you need to be killed by the law. You know what he's saying? He's saying the reason we're okay saying, well, I'm just a good person, is because our version of what's acceptable is really low. Right? we don't make the, If you're going to be a legalist, if you're going to live by law, you're going to make the, the law really low so that you can get over it. And what he's saying is God's standard is way higher than that. And if you want to see an example of that, I think we have to go to Matthew chapter 5. So keep your finger in Galatians. Go to Matthew 5. That's on page 810 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. We'll start in verse 17. And in Matthew chapter 5, we see... Uh, Jesus talking about the law. Interestingly, this is the Sermon on the Mount. It was Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. And here we get in Matthew 5, Jesus' uh, deepest explanation and uh, actually extension of the implications of the law. Here's what Jesus says in 5:17. Uh, he says, "Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets." I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, that means like, not a dot or an I or a cross of a T, that kind of thing, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, my point here is not to say the law doesn't matter. If you relax this, that, that ain't cool. Instead, but whoever teaches them, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were the most impressive spiritual people. So think of whoever in your mind is the most impressive, religious, faithful, devout believer. Jesus says. If your righteousness doesn't go way past theirs, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. If righteous, unless your righteousness exceeds that of Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus isn't setting a really low bar here, is he? He's kind of raising it. And then he raises it even more, right? And, and, and we're looking at this to see, we need to be killed by the law. OK? So verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Many of us go, That was one of my major defenses, is I didn't murder anybody. Good. Verse 22 But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You're dead. You're guilty, right? You've done that. You're dead, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ever looked at someone lustfully? You're dead again. Go to 43. 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be, everyone say it, perfect. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But Jesus, I can't be perfect. And Jesus has you right where he wants you. You've been killed by the law. Unless you're one of these fools that thinks you can do that. Paul is saying in Galatians, you, you can't. Paul makes a very similar argument in Romans chapter 7. Uh, we'll put this on the screen, it's a little shorter. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So so here's here's the key. When Paul says, through the law, I died to the law, what he's saying is, the law showed me I couldn't keep it, so I ran to Christ. And Christ was killed. Christ died, right? So remember the murder-suicide example? Christ is dead. There's no more condemnation. Like, I'm united to him. I died with Christ. And now I've been risen in order that we may bear fruit for God. He says, verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is fascinating. This is one of the reasons why law never works is because if you're going to live by the law, all it does is expose your sin. All it does is provoke your sinfulness. So you want a very clear example. Um, Have you ever walked by a sign that said, wet paint, don't touch? What did you want to do at that moment? What did it take all the willpower in your body to resist doing if you had it? To touch it. You didn't care. You don't don't want to touch the bench, but then you saw the sign. It it aroused the sinful passion in you. That's what the law does. And so it's it's designed to expose you that you can't keep it. He says, verse 6, but now we are released to the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, justification by faith, being made right with God by faith is like the story of the caterpillar. See, there was a caterpillar, and it was out slinking along, like caterpillars do, I suppose, out on a branch. And all of a sudden, the caterpillar saw something and had not seen before. There was a new sign posted that said, all caterpillars must fly or be subject to the punishment of death. So the caterpillar arched his back couldn't fly. Couldn't do it. Man, I'm under the punishment of death. So he goes, slinks away into a cocoon. A few days later, the Caterpillar police show up. Where is that disobedient Caterpillar? The law said he should fly and he can't fly. We're here to put him to death. And his neighbors come and say, Well, you can't, because he's already dead. He went into that thing a couple days ago. We haven't seen him. He's gone. Please say, case closed. And then a few days later, that caterpillar has been transformed. That caterpillar has been changed. It's been made a new creation. And out it comes of the cocoon and flies, fulfilling the law. That's what justification by faith is. It's going into the cocoon, clinging to Jesus, saying, Jesus, make me new. Make me a new creation. Give me the ability to do what I could never do on my own, which is to love you the way that you should be loved and love others the way that that you call me to do and to, to obey all that you've said. Make me new. That's justification By faith. And so if you're out there arching your back, trying to fly, you can't. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings it bids me fly and gives me wings. That's the truth of the scripture. So if you're here today and you are depending on your good works, will you repent of that? See, some of you, the main thing in between you and God is not your sin, it's your goodness. You are such a moral person, you are such a nice person, you are such a helpful person that it is hard for you to believe that God would condemn you. But on the authority of his word, not because I'm mean, and I know I'm talking loud now, but I'm not angry, (laughs) but on the authority of God's word, you can't be good enough. Repent of that. Repent of trying. Don't, don't stop being a good person. Don't stop being nice and helpful and caring, but, but repent of the reasons why you do it. John Gerstner says this The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works that make you think you don't need Him. Repent of that. Finally, justification unites us to Jesus, so cling to him. Justification unites us to Jesus. It's by faith, it's never by works of the law, and it unites us to Jesus. That's what Paul is highlighting then again here in verse 20. He's highlighting what what, uh, theologians have called union with Christ. You become one with Christ as you believe in him. He says, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ, he's saying. He's saying God treats me as if I died on the cross and paid for my sin because Jesus did, and I'm united to him. I'm no longer liable. The law has no more claim on me. I owe the law nothing. I paid in full because I'm united to him. Listen, listen, this is key. You will pay for your sins. Either eternally, in hell, or in Christ, Jesus has paid them for you. But sins will be paid for. I've been crucified with Christ, he says. He says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He's saying, God God sees me in the perfection and the beauty of Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm hiding behind Jesus' leg. And when the Father sees me, He sees His Son, who He loves, who perfectly obeyed, and who died in my place. In a sense, Paul's saying, I, I'm gone. The, the, the old me is, is gone. And the Bible uses this language that in, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Jesus said, you must be born again. Jesus is saying, you gotta get to the cocoon. You gotta be changed, you gotta be made new. And then this impacts your life here and now. See, see, one of the dangers of the way we've talked about this so far is that you might think of this courtroom of heaven thing someday and just go, well, I got a lot of time. I'm young. That'll be someday. Well, well, A, you don't know that. That could be now. I've done a lot of funerals, even as a younger pastor. I've probably done more funerals than weddings. And probably half of them were for people that you would have never expected. So that that could very well happen. But here's the thing, is living this way, living in light of this truth, shapes here and now. It shapes how you live now. Justin last week was talking about living in line with the truth of the gospel, and one of the things that he said that is absolutely true is that the Bible says that that, the way to, that this way of living is not just the right way, it's the best way. Everything that y- you would hope and, and think and imagine that would fulfill you at its deepest level is found by walking in line and in relationship with Christ. It's true. You have access to God. You have the promise that he will never leave or forsake you. What more could you want? It's not a promise that everything in your life will turn out rosy or the way you hoped or that you'll make a lot of money or that you'll always be healthy or that your kids won't wander away. There's no promises of that. But there is a promise that Jesus will never wander. This makes a huge difference. And so Paul says in verse 20, And the life I now live in the flesh, in my body, Right, I'm still here. I didn't actually die. I'm, this is a metaphor. I, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm living my life here and now, clinging to Jesus. Trusting Him. I've been made new. I, I'm in Him. And this, this look at how personal this is in verse 20. By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself. For me. There's an offer in the gospel to experience Jesus' love. Paul said in Romans 5, for a good man, someone might die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us. So we live clinging to him and and, and having him die in our place. That is good news. And then Paul finishes this section with this devastating line, this last verse, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The NIV says if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing, right? And, and, And Paul here is equating Jesus plus with nullifying the grace of God. He's saying Christ died for no reason. If anyone could be saved by being good, then Christ's death is senseless and pointless. Dr. Roger Nicole describes it this way. He says, it's like, imagine that your house is burning and you get your whole family out of it, right? But the house is burning to the ground. Everything's gonna be torched. And some some stranger comes to you and says, I want to save you. I'm going to rush into the house. And they rush into the house, but your, your whole family's already out of it. You've gotten yourself out. And they rush in and they die in the, in the fire. What would you say? What a moron. I told him we were out of here. Like we had done it but if But if your whole family got out, but you were still stuck there, He rushed into the fire and got you out but gave his life for it? You would say that was an act of unbelievable grace and love. So we have a choice. Will we trust in our good works and basically say, Jesus, you're a moron. You you didn't need to die that death on the cross. I got it. Hint, don't call Jesus a moron. Will you do that, or will you cling to him? Will you see that he is the only one that can save? This has huge implications for both Christians and those of you who are not yet Christians. So for Christians, the implication of this is tremendous. Will you live with the freedom and with the joy that you have been made right with God? Right, The rest of this book, one of the major themes of it is freedom. In chapter 5 it will say, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so will you live with the joy that there's no condemnation for you in Christ? I can't tell you how many Christians I know who are just badgered by this sense that they're never good enough. And if you, if you said to them, hey, God's in the other room, he's waiting for you. They would picture his face as an angry one rather than as a kind and gracious Father. And the Scripture says that in Christ, if you've, if you've united to Him, if you're clinging behind Jesus' leg, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are all, listen, you may be hearing this as a follower of Christ, going, this message isn't for me. This whole book is for you. And this is the key passage of this book. And you will experience tremendous freedom and delight and joy as you embrace Christ the reality of who God says you are in Him. For those of you who aren't yet Christians, there is nothing more important you could hear than this. Because all of us will die. You will die. And and, and not just for that day, but for every day. Much of the brokenness that you feel in this world is coming because you've tried to live your life on your own without clinging to Christ. Will you... Will you give that up? Will you humble yourself? Will you see that you are a sinner? Regardless of how moral you think you've been, regardless of how spiritual you think you've been, you deserve only God's wrath. Will you believe that? Will you cling to Christ? I'm going to give you a moment here before I pray, just just quietly, for you to pray. And wherever you find yourself, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, I want to give you time to talk to the Lord, to confess your sin, to confess the ways in which you have not clung to Jesus, but you've relied on yourself. I want to give you time to pray. If you're, if you're not yet a Christian, this would be a great time to cling to Jesus, to pray to him, to confess your sin, to ask him to make you new. So I'm going to give you moments to do that quietly, and then I'll pray. may we abandon our hopes of being made right with you through our goodness. May we embrace the perfection of Christ. May we cling to him and find life and freedom. We pray that in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to respond now.